You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. Mountains and shadows, blinding lights and heavenly voices, our gospel reading just begs for the best CGI to recreate the scene for us. We read a version of this story every year as a between moment, a stopping place between the season of Lent, or season after Epiphany and the beginning of Lent. And each week during this season building up to today, we've had a glimpse of sacred light. It began with the star guiding the Magi to the Christ child, to the stunning pronouncement at his baptism by John the Baptist, as a voice from the heaven declares, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And from then on, each week, the light grows slightly brighter as Jesus heals and teaches of the realm of God until today, once again, the sacred light just breaks into the story. As we are in the year of Matthew's gospel, we find the transfiguration story happens at the middle point of Matthew's telling of Jesus's life on earth. It serves as a narrative turning point for the gospel, a moment to pause before the story continues and the drama of crucifixion unfolds. Up to this point, the heat has slowly been turning up on Jesus and his ministry. He's already begun to clash with some religious leaders. Questions are being raised about his identity, his teachings, his purpose. And Jesus knows that the way before him will lead to a deadly conflict in Jerusalem. In fact, he tells his disciples the suffering that he will undergo And Peter speaks for all of them after that when in desperation he says, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But the die has been cast and Jesus knows deep in his bones that there is no turning back for him now. And this journey up to a high mountain provides that pause for us and for Jesus and his disciples to ground themselves in the larger story of the realm of heaven that Jesus has been ushering in before they take that dark turn to Jerusalem. I like how one writer puts it, just before he, Jesus, is to be disfigured, so to speak, by the dark brutality of the passion, he is transfigured by the light of glory. So off Jesus goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John on a strenuous journey, leaving the others behind them. 
And I have to confess, there are never enough details for me. I want to know more. I wonder, was it a quiet, contemplative journey? Or was it a lively and engaging hike? Did they take it as one of those challenge course courses and so speed hiking their way to the top? Or was it a time when each one of them was lost in their own thoughts as they followed that lonely trail up the mountain? If I were there, I would have been taking my usual, can you imagine the sight of that? As secretly, I'm just trying to catch my breath. Now, we know in the biblical tradition, mountains are often encounters, places where there are encounters with the divine. They are a meeting place with mystery. Moses and Elijah both have experiences of God on mountaintops, burning bush, the giving of the Ten Commandments, clouds covering the mountaintops, the voice of God speaking in sheer silence. So we as the readers are meant to expect that they will find the sacred when they get up to the top. And they do. The light grows, grows brighter and brighter as what seems to the disciples like sunlight just pours out of Jesus' face and his clothes blinding them with the brightness. And before they can get their bearing, two figures appear that are identified in the story somehow as Moses and Elijah. These are the top echelon of the prophets. And both of them are speaking with Jesus. Now notice this strange experience is not a solo revelation. It's not to Peter alone or to James or John alone, but they have this experience together as an integral part of Jesus's identity is revealed to them in a community. They see that Jesus is in conversation with prophets of old and the three of his disciples are there as witnesses and interpreters of that event. And we can imagine that Jesus at this moment is effectively bridging two worlds, isn't he? Two ages of religious experience on a high mountain, imaginatively bridging heaven and earth. And Peter. You gotta love Peter, don't you? I mean, we can understand what he says and desires as a good religious response. It's a faithful Jewish response. It's a human response, isn't it? Whatever is happening before him and James and John, Peter wants to remember this moment. He wants to honor this place to capture the emotions, the revelations that he's experiencing, and he longs somehow to make that all permanent. So he blurts out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters, three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We can do this. I suppose he thinks that if they construct monuments, they will never, ever forget what they've experienced in their bodies in this moment. I wonder if the story happened nowadays, Peter would just be taking out his cell phone and taking selfies with Moses and Elijah, squeezing Jesus into the frame, posting it on Instagram, hashtag mountaintop. 
even as Peter is brainstorming ways to document this experience, a bright light envelops them all, and they hear this voice from a cloud surrounding them. And I really like how the message puts it. The voice says, this is my son, marked by my love, the focus of my delight. Listen to him. Now what seemed at first wonderful, amazing, worthy of remembrance, suddenly now is overwhelming and frightening. And they're scared to death, overcome by fear, and they fall on their faces. I'm in the middle of this incredible book, and you'll probably hear me talk about it a lot because I can't stop. It's written by Dr. Keltner. It's called Awe. The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. And in the book, Keltner defines awe as the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. He's a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, and he's been studying human emotions for more than 20 years, particularly emotions of compassion and awe, and how they relate to our moral lives and how we live in community together. And his research has found eight general areas or categories of wonder, of awe in life, ways in which humans across cultures experience awe. He starts with what he calls well, when he relies upon Kant's idea of moral beauty, of seeing other people's courage or kindness or strength and being in awe, to collective effervescence. So think of that, what Durkheim calls a unison of movements. Think of marches or stadium experiences, of playing games together or dancing. We find awe in nature, awe in experiences of music, awe in visual design, in the arts. We find awe in spirituality and religion and we experience awe in moments of life and death. And we also experience awe in times of epiphany, of an awakening. We experience these moments of awe not only in our minds, but with our bodies, through the welling up of tears, or in the phenomenon of goosebumps or chills, or when we almost involuntarily say, in the presence of something vaster than ourselves. Researchers have found that experiences of awe shift our understanding of our own self. And it decenters us as it moves us to see ourselves connected to something bigger than ourselves. People who experience awe, even in small amounts, are more open, more curious. Awe also builds up our capacity for showing kindness. Research shows that awe experiences expand our circle of care. That is the network of people that we are willing to show kindness to. 
Peter, James, and John are immersed in an experience of wonder together that they don't truly understand. Words fail them as to what they experience. It, it transcends words and easy comprehension. Jesus looks at them and sees their distress, and then he does something amazing. Jesus came up and touched them, Matthew says. And then he said, get up and don't be afraid. There's something about Jesus' touch which reassures them, which grounds them back into the here and now. A simple touch. The story of transfiguration, the Greek word is metamorphosis, is rich and overflows with just a surplus of meaning, what philosophers call a saturated phenomenon. There is always more to it than we see at our first reading. And each time we come back to it, we discover more. We can begin, I think, with the understanding that at its core, this is a story which reveals Jesus to be, as the writer of Colossians declares, the icon of the invisible God. And I find this a powerful way to imagine Jesus as an icon, as a pointer, as a symbol that reveals the very heart of God. Maximus the Confessor writing in the 7th century, wrote of Christ as the Logos Revealer, as the divine word. And he believed that every part of creation bears the Logos as a seal or a mark, a mark of that divine Logos which brings all things into being. And so the focal point of the story for Maximus is the transfigured face of Christ. Radiating, radiating as bright as the sun, sublimely brilliant, attracting our attention, and yet impossible for us to stop and gaze upon. The transfigured face both reveals the divine and simultaneously conceals it from us. The disciples see, but they cannot see fully the glory of the moment. Because it's more than they can take in. It's that ineffable experience which leads to a second transfiguration, I think, we discover in this story. A transfiguration not of Jesus, but of the disciples, once they have seen and experienced this revelation. Maximus, the confessor, suggests that through our proximity to the revealer, to the icon of God, as we participate in the life of him, the logos revealer, we are also being changed. That we too become revelations of divine love. So in other words, if the transfiguration of Christ reveals the love, the glory, the connectedness of God to the world, and if we are a part of Christ's body, are connected to that revealer, then we're going to be transfigured by that same love. We cannot remain the same. Which means this story, I think, can lead us to a third transfiguration. 
that the transfiguration of our world is now a possibility. As our experiences change us, then we in turn change the world. Keltner writes, awe unleashes what William James called the saintly tendencies of religious experience, sharing, cooperation, and care. Which means transfigurations are not only for mountaintops, but also for our neighborhoods, for our workplaces, for our churches, for everywhere we are. We can be practicing transfiguration. Eventually, the disciples have to make their way back down the mountain. And again, my mind, I wonder what that walk was like. Was it quiet? Or were they full of questions? And once they returned back down, did they leave the heady experiences of the mountain behind or did they keep looking back over their shoulder? Did they consider giving it, all, giving it all up and going back home? I mean, after all, I suspect they thought they would never find another mountaintop experience like that one. They have to know they can never fully go back to that old way of living because they had been to the mountaintop. They had caught a glimpse of God's harmony way, and in doing so, they are beginning to be transfigured. Their view of the mountain, of Jesus, of themselves, and the world will never be the same again. The poet Edwin Muir begins his poem, Transfiguration, with a firsthand description of the change felt by the disciples. He writes, so from the ground we felt that virtue branch through all our veins till we were whole, our wrists as fresh and pure as water from the well, our hands made new to handle holy things. Dr. Keltner, in his research on awe, has studied people from around the world, different cultures, all major religions and the non-religious with a variety of worldviews and socioeconomic statuses. And when he came up with these eight classifications of all, the researchers were surprised by what they found to be the most common experience of all. Now, I described my experience on Mount Rainier, and that's what we often think of as awe in nature. But across all cultures, around the world, it wasn't an experience of nature, it wasn't particular religious practices or art or music. People are most likely to feel awe when they are moved by moral beauty. That might be when we see someone exhibit courage, when living through a time of suffering, or when we see someone show kindness to another person, or when we see people overcoming obstacles or persevering through hardships that we cannot, cannot imagine persevering through ourselves. In other words, our most common moments of awe, we find in the ordinary people we see around us doing kind things, showing courage in tough times. At first, Peter was moved to mark as sacred that spot, 
high on the mountain where awe enveloped him to revere the place of that encounter. And then Jesus sees that the moment is so overwhelming and comes to touch them reassuringly. And it's in that touch, I think, that we find the possibilities of transfiguration of the disciples becomes real. It's not in the blinding light, but it's in that gentle touch of human connection between Jesus and the disciples. That connection we know will deepen as they return to the others. They will continue to experience moments of awe together. They will walk together alongside Jesus to Jerusalem. They will bear witness to his strength in the face of adversity. They will grieve at his violent death. And then finally, at the very end of Matthew's story, they will return to Galilee yet again. They will climb a mountain and together they will have an experience of the risen Christ there. On that mountain, at the end of Matthew's gospel, we are meant to remember this scene, this moment of transfiguration. To see that the disciples are in the midst of another awe moment with the risen Christ. And at that moment, just as before, they will have no need to build monuments. For Jesus tells them in the final verses of Matthew's gospel, Lo, I am with you. Every single day to the very end of the age. And it's with that promise, the transfiguration of the world begins. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.